Steve Alcohol. This is a speaker meeting, and uh, the speaker will speak from maybe five, between, can speak between five and 50 minutes. If they finish early, those to open up the meeting, however uh, they want. And uh, tonight's speaker is Henry, who uh, gotten to know this year a little, and uh, somebody suggested that he'd be, be, they wanted to hear him speak, and then I was like, maybe I do too. Uh, <laughs> and I was thinking I kind of wanted to, to get to know him better, but really if I look at that, I have, uh, have had chances to get to know him better. Uh, I don't need to, need to have a speaker meeting for that. Um, but here's Henry. Hi, everybody. I'm Henry, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, so my sobriety date is August 20th, uh, 2018, and for that I am very grateful. Um, so August 20th is just as good a day as any other day uh, to do anything, but that particular August 20th happened to be my 32nd birthday, um, which is not a coincidence, and it's part of the story. Um, so. Whenever I tell stories or just generally talk off the cuff, I tend to uh, meander and over-explain and kind of fail to get to my point in that special sort of way that turns two-minute stories into like 30-minute expositions of all sorts of topics. Um, so uh, I am also very uncomfortable speaking in front of people, uh, although generally I don't know when to shut up when in one-on-one -on -one conversations. So. Um, those two points taken together explain why I am reading this instead of making it up on the spot. Uh, and why so few of you have been, who have been around for the last year or so have ever heard me talk. Um, while a few of you have probably heard me talk a little too much. Um, so I will start at the beginning. Um, my mom's parents, <laughs> uh, we're from just outside of this little small town in uh, rural Wisconsin that people only happen to know about because of football. Um, and they, uh, they migrated with my grandfather's job. Uh, so fortunately for me, he worked for the Navy and she hated the cold, so they ended up in Southern California. Uh, so that family uh, still gets together regularly and they are generally very well-intentioned, very good people who take care of each other and look out for one another. Um, my dad's family is a slightly different story. Uh, after World War II, Grandpa became a welder on oil rigs all over central and, coast and coastal California. And uh, he kind of lived the quasi-transient roughneck life. So uh, my dad ended up with a couple different flavors of partial or half-sibling. Um, and uh, at times it could be a little bit dysfunctional. So my dad got lucky in a twisted kind of way. Um, there was a major tragedy that really kind of foundationally shook his family when he was still really young. Um, and I definitely wouldn't be sitting here uh, if he had chosen to treat that kind of 
despair <laughs> that came out of that with drugs and alcohol. Um, so instead, he, um, I just realized I can zoom in on this. That's way better. Uh, so instead, he decided he didn't want to live that life, and he got his shit together. So uh, he found my mom, he went to school, and he kind of just joined her family. Um, eventually, they set up shop and started popping out kids. Uh, and like many parents, they were uh, very careful to protect their children from big, scary, dangerous world, um, and I was their first. So I did most of my growing up in a, uh, a nice big house, completely surrounded by commercial lemon and avocado orchards. Um, and I went to a very small, very evangelical <coughs> Christian school that happened to be nearby. Um, my parents are not religious, but if you were a moderately successful person interested in protecting your kids from the hazards of the California public education system, apparently the go-to answer at that point in time was that you dropped them off with the nearest Christians for a few years and hoped for the best. <laughs> um, so between the tiny school that I attended, being the oldest, and living in a house in the middle of nowhere, um, I ended up spending a lot of time by myself. Uh, most of the time that I was not in school, I was wandering around in an orchard or this huge ravine by the house uh, with the dogs, or I was reading books. Um, reading was always kind of my primary means of escape. Uh, I started reading a lot in first grade, and I was one of those kids that would occasionally walk into walls or fences or people. Um, when I was focused on a book, so sort of like an elementary school version of texting while driving. Um, my parents encouraged uh, the reading habit in every possible way that they could come up with. Um, Dad had kind of discovered the value of formal education uh, pretty late in life, and uh, it kind of turned him into a hard ass <coughs> when it came to school. So the general rule in their house was that as long as my grades were decent, I could pretty much do whatever I wanted. Uh, and kind of, despite being private, the school that I went to wasn't super awesome academically. Um, so long story short, my kind of problems with the man, so to speak, uh, and institutions generally start with a perfectly nice woman named Miss Smith in fifth grade. Uh, <laughs> She kind of, let's just say, she took issue with me doing my homework in kind of big chunks a week or two in advance so that I have more time to fuck around during class. Um, Dad actually backed me up on that one, but the practical solution in her classroom was to like isolate me in a corner by myself and turn me around and face the other way, um, which I still don't think was the ideal solution for like a loner kid who happened to be a little bit disruptive. Um, <clears throat> so, although today I have a you know, deep respect for a lot of academia, uh, early experience taught me that to be kind of wary of institutions of all kinds. Um, and that was when the seeds were originally sown in my mind that the adults who called the shots didn't always have their shit together. Um, I also learned that when challenged, those people tended to react by wielding whatever they, power they had over me. So I slowly learned how to play along and do the minimum required to keep all the different pe powerful people happy, happy in my life. Yeah, that's exciting. 
Um, that is roughly how I ended up going through the first 30 or so years of life without any real purpose or sense of direction, just kind of doing the minimum in school and eventually work uh, that I needed in order to keep my parents, the school, and eventually landlords and banks and bosses happy and off my ass while I fucked around in red books or played video games or whatever. Um, I originally had no interest in going to college, uh, even though that was always my parents' plan. So I picked my college mostly because they came and presented at my high school, and it was very far away from Southern California. Um, in other words, it was very far away from my parents in Boston, um, where you don't have to drive so you can't get a DUI. Uh, for what feels like forever, that's how it's kind of gone with me. I've always been a loner, I've always been quiet, I've always been naturally critical, and I've always chafed against whatever institutions or organizations I felt inconvenienced to be part of. It's made me extremely lonely at times. And that's as good a place as any to jump into what it's like, or what it was like. So I'm pretty sure that my parents started instilling this drinking is not for you thing in me when I was 13 or 14. I don't remember the specifics, but it amounted to scare tactics like mothers against drunk drivers, DUI stuff, uh, liver damage, you'll end up homeless or in prison. So scare tactics. Um, the tragedy that I uh, mentioned earlier about my dad's family uh, did involve drunk driving. So they were pretty adamant that I not go down that path. Um, so 20 years later, after a lot of in-depth field research, I finally agree with my parents. The end. No, just kidding. Um, so the, uh, the scare tactics actually did work for a little while, and I started drinking at 17. So I can't remember what the first thing that I ever drank was, but it was probably, you know, like plastic uh, bottle of vodka that tasted like nail polish remover. Um, I don't remember my very first drink, but I do, ironically, remember the very first time that I blacked out. Uh, it was junior year of high school, uh, and a friend of mine was going to drive a group of us to a party. So before we left, we raided his dad's liquor cabinet, and I ended up drinking a lot of the expensive version, whatever that's called, of Captain Morgan. So we drank some amount of that, and then we left to go to the party. So the next morning, which is the next part that I remember, I woke up in his living room, and which is definitely not where the party was. Uh, and it turns out that everyone but me had made it into the party, had a great time, while I thrown up all over the backseat of his car and took a, a nap in there while uh, everybody else partied. Uh, after we got back, his dad had apparently come home, and he was also drunk, and uh, he had been very upset with us. Uh, with the two of us, because we finished his rum that he was planning on drinking more of. Um, so I, of course, was very concerned that this would somehow get back to my parents. <clears throat> but as far as I know, it didn't, because that guy's dad was actually himself a really angry drunk who didn't talk to anybody else in town. Um, so the sort of central idea of that scene uh, has played out probably a thousand times over the last 15 years for me, more or less. Um, the people in the scene change, the variety of alcohol in the container changes, um, the authorities figures, authority figures change. I get older and the consequences change, but that is my pattern when I drink and that hasn't changed. <coughs> um, 
a couple of hours of you know enjoyable hijinks, uh, followed by waking up somewhere and feeling like shit, <coughs> while I tried to figure out what the fuck happened. Uh, it was a very rare exception to just get drunk a little and go to bed eventually like a regular person, uh, and usually that was because I ran out. Um, so you've all heard these stories hundreds of times, so just imagine a guy that blacks out all the time, and recently a high percentage of that uh, was just alone in my room, probably drunk texting or drunk dialing or drunk tindering or drunk redditing or whatever equally depressing thing you can imagine. I probably did it. Um, so what happened? <coughs> so the end of my drinking career took uh, some time to come together, so we're kind of going back in time a little bit. Um, so one year in college, I lived in a, a, a party house uh, because I always thought it would be great to finally be one of the cool kids, and if the parties are at your house, you can't really not be invited. Uh, it was the sort of place where a handful of ten roommates ended up with misdemeanors for the various legal issues that come with throwing giant off-campus parties with a lot of underage attendees. After about a year of that, I stopped drinking for a little <coughs> under a year. No real plan, no AA, just no drinking. Uh, which is also how, through kind of dumb luck and timing, I did not end up with a misdemeanor community service, whatever. Uh, then I got an internship at a company where going out for drinks was part of the culture. Uh, in hindsight, as someone who now lives in Austin, I can say that it probably didn't have much to do with the company. It turns out alcohol is really popular, and it's just like that in a lot of places. Uh, so I consulted my dad, who was in the loop on this whole no drinking thing that I engaged in, and uh, he gave me one of the few pieces of bad advice he's ever given me, which was something like, just keep it cool and have a couple. Uh, well, you know how it goes. Uh, after a few weeks of happy hour fun and making friends, I'm trudging through like six inches of snow to buy bottles at the liquor store to drink alone in my room. So the 11 years from age 21 to 32 were like that. Uh, in kind of fits and starts, I resolved to stop drinking and then start again for one reason or another. Mostly, I told myself, boredom. Uh, throughout this entire time, more than a few people, but mostly my parents and whoever had made the mistake of being my roommate, um, pointed out that my drinking was a problem. Uh, but you guys know how it is. Uh, who are they to tell me how to live my life? They drink just as much as I do. What do they know? Or my favorite, which was, watch this, I won't drink for a whole week to prove that I have this under control. Uh, on repeat for like 11 years. Uh, ups and downs, of course, but you get the general idea. Um, so I moved, I moved here to Austin um, to do a grad school program. Uh, because honestly, I didn't feel like I had another option back in Boston. Although, uh, truthfully, I didn't really try. My self-esteem was pretty shot by that point. Um, so, you know, who wants a washed up 28-year-old who happens to be good with numbers? <laughs> um, I felt uh, trapped, and the next logical thing to do for someone who hates institutions of all varieties is to sign up for more school. So after grad school, I got what 
I would probably still describe as my dream job. And things to, uh, began to feel like they were finally kind of coming together. Um, my relationship life hadn't picked up, but most of the other pieces were coming along. Uh, then I abruptly lost that job when the company changed their plans. Uh, I honestly don't think that decision had anything to do with my drinking directly, but I was hungover as fuck every Monday morning in a super intense job, so it's not hard to draw a connection. Um, then my little brother got married, which is incidentally the last time I did any public speaking. Um, and something about that kind of that wonderful wedding put some very dark thoughts into my head. Uh, everyone back in California was moving on with their lives, building families, buying houses, and generally being <coughs> pretty happy and positive and Californian about things. Um, meanwhile, I had just learned that I was out of a job. I was renting a room in this like gradually worsening living situation, worsening living situation to like save money after school and uh, I didn't have any friends, no one loved me, and I pretty much was just shit-faced all the time. So for one of the three or four most recent times, I decided that one of the things I needed to do was to stop drinking and get it together. Uh, I also decided that I needed to upgrade a bunch of shit in my life because, you know, unemployed drunks who cry themselves to sleep at night and live in people's spare bedrooms are not very marketable or something. Uh, so I got another job. <clears throat> then I got a nice apartment with a bunch of furniture that I bought at retail for the first time ever. And eventually, because I was fixing all this uh, cosmetic shit that was wrong with me, I got LASIK. Uh, I used to be really blind, and I'm still pretty happy about that one. Uh, so somewhere in the midst of all this like upgrading of everything, I, I picked up drinking again. Uh, it was a couple of months of my usual pattern before one day I kind of woke up on the floor and the thought crossed my mind that <coughs> it probably wasn't the apartment or all the nice shit I had bought or the lack of glasses that was going to fix me. Uh, the thought went something like, well, Henry, this is certainly a much nicer place to wake up on the floor surrounded by empty bottles. Uh, so again, I got kind of depressed. Um, so June of 2018, I made one of those like <coughs> crafty alcoholic deals with myself. Um, I said that I was going to give myself until my birthday that August to get my drinking under control. If I couldn't, then I was going to call a friend of mine from school that I knew was in AA and see if he had any better ideas. Um, so when I was drinking, I tended to make multiple trips to the, the, the store in the same night. So by only a little bit of time, I could tell myself I was only drinking like a not too crazy amount. And then, you know, like, should I need to, I could go back to, to five more times to the same store uh, before they closed. So telling myself the same thing every time. Uh, I don't think I have to expand on how that works in here. Um, so showing like a tiny bit of self-awareness of the pattern, uh, the deal that I made with myself was not unlike how certain pet owners will leave food out for the dog to come get whenever they want. I, uh, I got one of those like party-sized bottles of Jim Beam, and the deal was if I could make that bottle last until my birthday, two months away, I'd have my drinking under control. <laughs> uh, so since you're here, you already know that I would be a very fat pet. Uh, <laughs> and that bottle did not last a week. So uh, <laughs> true to the deal with myself, 
uh, around the end of July, I went to a barbecue at the, my friend's house who was in AA at the time. Uh, we went to go see Black Klansman at Alamo. And uh, on top of all the beers I've been drinking all day, I had a couple whiskeys at the theater. And uh, afterward, I awkwardly and very drunkenly told him that I needed some help to stop drinking. Uh, so he told me to show up at 9 a.m. the next day at an address near his house, which turned out to be Northland. Uh, I, uh, I overslept that appointment because I was at some bar until closed that night. After all, I had told myself that I was going to stop on my birthday, not before my birthday, and I was a crafty alcoholic rationalizer. So a few weeks later, on my birthday, I did tell him I was done and uh, that I needed to know what to do next. So uh, as instructed, I showed up at a Methodist church in Terrytown at 7.30 on Thursday for a meeting called Solutions in Sobriety. <clears throat> and it was terrifying. So first, they call on people to share in that meeting. And as I said at the top, I'm generally terrified of talking in front of groups. Uh, so second, I recognized a lot of people in that meeting. So there was the friend that took me, obviously, but there were another like 10 or so people in uh, the room that I knew or was acquainted with in some way. Uh, I had even done some work for one of them like right after school. And uh, afterwards, <coughs> that guy uh, pulled me aside and assured me that it was okay for me to be in the room and that although I might be freaking out about seeing all these people I recognized, to remember that they were all there too. <clears throat> so my friend gave me a ride home from the meeting, gave me the intergroup website, uh, told me to go to more meetings, and he told me not to drink. So I didn't make it to a meeting that Friday for some flimsy reason. Uh, but I looked up AA meetings near me on Saturday, and I showed up here that night. So. Let me set that scene for you a little bit by contrast. So my very first meeting, huge, brightly lit room in Terrytown. There were probably 50, 60 people there. Most of them were wearing, you know, businessy clothing, and there were a lot of really nice cars outside, and everyone seemed pretty well rehearsed, and I remember most of it being pretty positive. Uh, they sang happy birthday to people at the end, and a lot of the people there went to go get food afterward. <laughs> So two days later, I walked up to Bolden, and one of the lights was burnt out or something, or somebody didn't turn the lights on, and it was pretty dark and dingy in here. And uh, there were maybe 10 people, and it was one of those really quiet, intense meetings that happened from time to time. I don't remember the topic, but it was not a happy one. So I still have this mental image of Nate, who I don't know if Nate's here. You guys might know Nate. Um, he was like sitting under the sign over here, and he's got these big ass tattooed arms like crossed in front of him, and he's talking about sometimes he's just pissed off about stuff, and he looked like he wanted to start a fight. And, uh, <laughs> and that was my first meeting. And the, the next meeting, I came to a Bolden. Someone started sharing by saying something like, I just can't stop smoking crack. Uh, and generally, everyone's problems sounded really terrible to me. So I hit the exit as soon as possible after the meetings, and I kept doing that for the next few weeks, uh, basically picking out the things that seemed to justify 
AA not being for me. Um, so I very quickly formed this idea that AA might not be for me, and I was pretty close to being done with it after a couple weeks. But I kept coming back because I couldn't really think of a better option. And through you know the magic of osmosis, I got the sense that people who had been around here for a while weren't struggling with life, struggling with life in quite the same way that I was. Uh, they took themselves a little less seriously than I did. And every once in a while, as if there was some fucking spy in here who was reading my mind, someone would share something that sounded exactly like whatever problem was going on in my head. <laughs> and it would shock me into thinking that there still might be something here worth coming back for. So after a few weeks, I got a sponsor. And one of the first things he told me was that he called his higher power something completely and utterly ridiculous that he had made up to fuck with the people at his rehab. So we got along really well. <laughs> uh, the first thing we ever really talked about was whether I was an alcoholic. Um, so with what I had heard in here, I did what came naturally to me, and I kind of weighed what people said about themselves against my mental version of myself, and I kind of had my doubts. So I even thought at one point that I was going to get fired as a sponsee because he was going to discover that I wasn't as bad as some of the things that I had heard in here. So we had a conversation, and I explained pretty much what I just told you guys about my drinking pattern, just with a bit more meaty and embarrassing content around consequences filled in. Uh, he responded with something like, does that sound manageable to you? And of course it didn't. Uh, it was utterly unmanageable, and it was getting worse. So that was pretty much step one for me. And that's how the steps progressed. We sort of circuitously explore some of the ideas around the step and we ask questions and let me come to my conclusions. Uh, and eventually we just get to a point where he'd tell me to just do whatever it was and see what happened. Uh, he taught me to keep my head out of the results. Um, those are whatever they're going to be. Uh, and my kind of entire value to the world, professionally speaking, is based on having a decent grasp of like causality. So that was a pretty big shift in thinking. Um, one of the most important things that my sponsor was able to pass through a lot of very dense skull material was that I wasn't an especially unique case of tortured alcoholic. And in fact, I wasn't even an especially unique case of human being. Uh, my, problems, my problems are always very uniquely terrible and terrifying and imminent uh, in my own head. And he taught me to remind myself that I was just another person with all that that entails, among which are problems and defects and issues. It just comes with the territory. So the animal in my brain gets spooked easily when minor petty things are wrong or not going my way. And it magnifies those things to mean the end of the universe and I naturally react accordingly. I have to let that shit go, however it's going to go, and accept it. So he taught me that the problems that other people were talking about in the room weren't there for me to compare myself or my situation to. They were for me to observe others working through their problems so that I could learn how to work through problems of my own, so that I could understand eventually that everyone has problems, and that judging people for their problems that they are working on is only self-destructive. 
He taught me to try for a moment, to put myself in their position and understand what they're going through so that by talk, taking myself out of my own head for a few minutes, I might either learn something or realize how trivial my own problems really are when viewed with perspective and objectivity separated from the brain that they take up so much space in. He also taught me that most of the steps and most of this program in general don't have anything to do with alcohol. That if I didn't take an honest look at myself and follow some pretty simple suggest suggested solutions which are conveniently plastered on the walls, mm -hmm. I was probably going to find myself looking for an alternative solution again and I'd probably find it in a familiar, familiar self-destructive place. So what it's like now. Uh, I just want to touch on a couple of the kind of foundational pieces of that for me. So I titled this section, What the Fuck is God? <laughs> um, <laughs> my relationship with God, which you can't tell is capitalized on this page, is contentious. Earlier I mentioned that I went to a religious school, and in fact I went to several over time. That comes with a lot of baggage, but I'll leave it at this. Today I'm an atheist. So as someone who struggled with the God thing for months, I've come to think of the, the words, as we understood, as the most important part of that step. So today, God is some blurry, that's lowercase, is some blurry idea that uh, captures kind of the aspirational thoughts that people think about humanity in general. Sort of the collective goodwill of people. That, work, that works like this. When I pray about something, I try to imagine what a group of well-intentioned, well-meaning people who want what is best for people, including me, would want the answer to be. And then I act like that is the answer and go do whatever it is. If I can't imagine what this mental panel would want the answer to be, I ask one of you. Because while some of you do bad things and think bad thoughts and have a litany of flaws, just like I do, <laughs> most of you actually want what is best for other people. Which, as I have to remind myself pretty often, includes me. Basically, you guys became my god, and for now, that works. So the next section is small things. So... I've found that small things add up on me. So I'm really quick to put things off or uh, slide on minor obligations because, you know, there is something much more pressing and important and imminent going on in my head. Or I just want to fuck around and watch TV for a while. Um, the little things become big things really quickly. Uh, you know, not making my bed for a few days isn't actually a problem by itself but the mental disposition that lets me walk away from the unmade bed will probably leave me with a sink full of dishes and shit everywhere in my apartment in a matter of days. So similarly, a little bit of relaxing isn't so bad. But what's another show if I'm already sitting here, there? What's another 15 minutes mindlessly scanning social media or the internet? That sort of thing. Then six hours later, I wonder where a whole day went, or it's 3 a.m. and I'm now fucked for work the next day. The way my brain is wired is that these little things will always consume more time, more energy, and generally cause more chaos and eat into my other obligations 
than I initially tell myself they will. It always starts with a, I'll get that later, or I'll just do this for 20 minutes, and then I'll do the important thing. It's just constantly hitting the snooze button and telling myself, I'll get up next time it goes off. I've fed myself those lines for 30 years now, and it's been bullshit almost every single time. So on the rare occasion that I follow through, even I'm surprised, and I'll even reward myself for doing what I was supposed to. It's also how I drink. I've never started off thinking, you know what would be great, stopping by the liquor store on the way home and then walking back every hour or so, three or four more times, ever more drunkenly over the course of the evening, until I pass out in a chair or go get kicked out of a bar and wake up on a sidewalk somewhere. Never once was that the plan. <laughs> but it was the outcome more often than not. Again, I don't have control over the results, but that doesn't mean I can't use my experience to inform my choices. I'll probably always periodically or cyclically slip into these behaviors, but today I catch myself doing it and acknowledge that it's happening. I'm getting better about doing something about it when I catch it, and I ask myself if I'm lying to myself a lot, especially when it comes to being honest about isolating. The solution is much less about stopping myself from starting something that's destructive than it is about trying to be honest about what it is I'm actually likely to let happen. Like, what am I really signing up for here? And that applies when it comes to drinking, just like it applies to household chores or Netflix. I've always just liked this line, so I called the next section Fear is the mind killer, which is a famous line from a fam famous sci-fi book called Dune. Uh, and it starts a longer verse that I've always liked, but only recently really appreciated. Uh, it's one of the few things I've ever considered tattooing on myself, which I didn't. Um, <laughs> so after I did my fifth step with my sponsor, which had something like 40 items on it, he handed me this tiny piece of paper and said, that said, in giant capital letters across the top, fear. And in smaller letters underneath that, playing God. Huh? I've always rationalized my fears as being careful or thoughtful or as not wanting to piss people off or as other people being in the wrong, kind of whatever convenient excuse I could conjure for, you know, inaction. So my sponsor taught me that all fear basically boils down to two things, which is not getting what I want and losing what I have. And I've learned that to begin combating this sort of like visceral and constant fear that has always haunted everything in my life, all I have to do is let go of this notion that I am somehow uniquely important or interesting or tortured or consequential to the universe. I just try to take the next step the best I know how and accept the world and my place in it as it unfolds. I have to accept that all institutions are flawed. I have to accept that people are flawed. And I have to accept that people fuck up. And most importantly, as a card-carrying member of humanity, I have to accept that I own my part in all of those things. I am part of several different flawed institutions. I have many major flaws, and I fuck up all the time. 
In other words, I have to accept that I'm just another regular human being trying to do my best most of the time. So, from one regular human being to another, thank you for listening. Mm. Now what? <laughs> lead the rest of the meeting, or if you want me to, oh. I can't. Whatever you want. Yeah, sure. Open it up. sounded uh, amazing that uh, you're trying to figure out if you're really an alcoholic. Uh, blacking out the first time or something like that was uh, shocking to me. I've never heard of anybody doing that, but I guess it happens. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I, um, I really relate to uh, when you said like setting a goal. I did that more than once, man, and um, it doesn't work, yeah, absolutely right. If you're an addict, at least, I feel like setting a goal is just like a, a weird excuse to like keep on doing it when you know you should stop, you know? That was cool you shared that. Thanks, man. Hi, I'm Kat, and I'm an alcoholic. Kat. And you know, um, I, first off, thank you so much for sharing your story. I know it wasn't easy for you. I could tell by watching you <laughs> that you are not a public speaker, my friend. <laughs> but one thing you do have to share is, is your story. And it takes some balls to get up there and do it. And I want to uh, give you some kudos on that. Um, you know, I, I was a reader also, so I can relate to that. I still read a lot when I'm trying to, especially when I'm trying to escape. Uh, one thing I've always taught the kids that I work with is that, and this is what someone taught me, which made me want to read more, is when, when I read, I could be anybody I wanted to be, and I could go anywhere I wanted to go, and do anything I wanted to do. And that sounded real good to me at eight years old because uh, 
I um, couldn't figure out how to escape where I was. But anyway, Buffy. So, um, and for me, reading turned into alcohol and drugs. And like the dog wagging its tail, eventually I found my way back in. Uh, but I, I, I've watched you since you've been here in in our program, in our meeting, in our group. And you come to the 5.30, don't you? Yeah. And um, I don't think I've ever heard you speak. So you must it, it, you must be shitting bullets up there, right? <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> and I want to thank you for it. Thanks, Kat. Greg, alcoholic addict. I just want to say thank you very much for sharing. Um, I get terrified to share, just in general, like right now for some reason. So it's very admirable for you to do that. And you do have a story. When I was talking to my sponsor about sharing, and he basically told me to start doing that regardless. And he pointed something out that it wasn't about me. It was about helping another alcoholic and getting my story, my solution out there. So, very grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Brad. I'm grateful for sharing Hey, Brad. Hey, Brad. Pretty much, I've been in AA since I was a I've been in AA for about 40 years, and I was teen, six or seven. Uh, I couldn't figure out the God shit either. Uh, when I read the Bible, it just scared me. something that worked for me because nobody could you know even and the thing that I liked about it had the, it was the only other book that I ever found that had the same terminology as AA and it landed on our continent at the same time AA did it talks about things like the father of lights I never heard that in the bible I ain't no fucking father of lights in the bible um, but when I read it it, it gave me a choice you know of what I could choose uh, because some of it's so fucking out there, I, I didn't want it, you know, you know, there, you know? Um, but it gave me a choice that I'm still working with today, you know, and there's higher and lower and all kinds of stuff, and I, I, I needed that, I needed that because, you know, in my opinion right now, when everything is becoming blended with technology, Everything is shifting all over the place. And I need some place to go. This is where I choose to stand. This is where I choose to keep my existence. Um, because we used to have things where tribes and groups and religions would gather and that's how they'd hold their space. <coughs> Everyone's going fucking everywhere all the time, you know? Um, so that's all I got. I'm Spike, I'm a grateful alcoholic. I learned that expression, I'm a grateful alcoholic, from my sponsor that I are good friends with. And I used to think it was a really stupid expression. It annoyed me. Um, but now I'm really genuinely a grateful alcoholic. And as I was listening to you, I was just thinking, 
Um, some of my gratitude is, you know, I think if we weren't alcoholics, we might never have crossed paths. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe we would have. But I uh, want to thank you for sharing your story. And I'm also grateful because I've been on the receiving end of some of your so-called meandering stories. And I actually quite like them. And I learned so much from you. So I'm just really glad that you came in. I'm really glad I came in. And thank you for sharing. Thanks, Mike. Hi, I'm Angelica. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, um, I'm really grateful that I came to this meeting. Um, I almost wasn't going to come, so it's my first speaker meeting at this meeting. Um, and I'm also, uh, my sobriety day is also August 20th. Yeah, and, <laughs> and it also happens to be my birthday. <laughs> so when I got here and sat down, I was like, oh, well, maybe I was meant to be here. <laughs> um, but no, um, like you, I really don't like, I think it's because we're Leos, who knows, I really don't like being in front of people and talking. Um, this is my second meeting here. Um, like you, I kind of leave my way in, and I'm like, oh, wait, I don't fit in, I gotta go. And then I find myself back in here, and then I leave, and then I come back, and like today, for my lunch break, I really wanted like wine or something. I'm like, I'm just gonna get, you know, just go down the street and get some wine, and instead of, I went down the street and I came here, and I was late, and um, kind of felt bad. And this guy had something really good to share, and I just started crying. I don't even know what it was, I don't know why I was crying. Like, never cry and it just kind of hit home for me and um i do feel like i belong here and i'm grateful to be here so thanks thank you, thank you. i'm tracy alcoholic tracy. Tracy. i want to thank you for your story i appreciate it i learned a lot and i felt you were very eloquent i really identified with the struggle with the spiritual concepts and um your story reminded me how we have so much in common, no matter where we're from, or what our age, or gender, or anything else is. We have so much that ties us together. I'm so grateful that we are everywhere. So I heard um, an acronym at a meeting in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and they, they too struggled with that concept. And they said their higher power was the group, and that G-O-D stood for group of drunks. And <laughs> I love that, and I use it, and I just wanted to share my gratitude with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hmm? You are a rapper. I don't know how to wrap it up. Okay. <laughs> Words right? You're the chair, Steve. Oh, okay. <laughs> Chairperson's duties. It says duties right there. <laughs>